My name is Jasmine Sue, and you're listening to JTT. Today's interview is with Anna Sophie Berger. Anna was born in 1989 in Vienna, Austria. She has lived in Paris, London, Tokyo, Munich, New York, and Vienna, where she grew up and where she currently lives and works. Living in those countries has allowed her the opportunity to study multiple languages. She can speak German, French, and English fluently, Italian and Serbian conversationally, and while she claims she can't speak Japanese, I witnessed from afar her studying the language every day while she lived in Tokyo for a few months. I bring this up not so much to compliment Anna, while as her adoring art dealer, it's hard for me not to do, but more to point to the volume of time of Anna's daily life that has been and continues to be consumed with learning languages. Every day she's engrossed in a dictionary, constantly getting to the bottom of the meaning of a word, or searching for the best word to describe a feeling or expression. She is very careful when translating her titles, which sometimes feature idioms that need to be culturally translated as much as linguistically. This approach to language expands into objects very fluidly for Anna, who makes photography, installation, video, performance, and sculpture. She thinks about materials as if they're words, which is to say that materials are something one can shuffle through until you find the most appropriate one for the intention of an artwork. Anna is also keenly aware of the various apparatuses in place around objects. She's concerned with the object's production, its distribution, and how the object is ultimately consumed. Her work deals with how nationality, class, and the public or the private realms of government denote significance of an object. Today's interview is a little longer than our other podcasts as Anna walks us through a major solo show at the Kunstverein Bonn. For images of the show, please visit jttnyc.com. And one technical note, I recorded this interview in a somewhat experimental fashion because I'm an art dealer and not a sound technician. Without getting into details as to how this occurred, sometimes when you hear me, it sounds like I'm on the phone and sometimes it sounds like Anna's on the phone because we're on the phone with each other. We edit it in a way that we hope isn't too distracting. Okay, thanks for listening. Anna Sophie, we are here today to talk about your Boner Kunstverein show that opened up on September 4th and it was curated by Suzanne Mirzweck. I am so upset that I wasn't able to see this show in person and you very generously have walked us through the show a bit digitally, but I feel like it's one of the most important shows you've done yet by far. And I thought before we get into that show, I wanted to introduce our listeners to your practice a bit. So while I represent you and have for um, a couple of years now, I have to say that defining your practice has always been something that is mutable and changing. And I think a part of that is because when you come upon one of your works, it's not always easy to say, this is an Anna Sophie Berger artwork because you use so many different types of materials. And I think that that's something that actually crystallizes a bit in the Bonner show. I thought maybe you could just start by talking a little bit about the work that you were making when we first met, which was right when you had just finished your degree at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna, and you got your MFA in fashion. And early on, I really understood your work through this lens of fashion, but it was very clear within the course of the first year of us working together that it was not just fashion that you were interested in. So I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what your work was like in those early years. I think when we met, 
I mean, we met in and around my final thesis project, so a year before and then after when we did the show, which was sort of like the gallery adaptation of that work, which was a fashion collections of ever so many outfits devised, designed, drawn uh, and constructed by myself and then in parts also produced by myself. I had some help, but very much a huge project which was critically not thought or produced um, for a gallery context. And in this sense, I don't think it's like you met me and underestimated or overestimated my relationship to fashion. It's really more that I was at a threshold of learning, understanding, what my fashion education vis-a-vis -vis my own subjective relationship to finite was. So at the point where I showed the work at JTT, I think many complications were already present, but maybe submerged. So it enabled us to do a show which was critically really, very well received and I was happy. But then I, I would say now that at least the next three years I spent thinking about uh, to spell it out, like, what does it mean that I have fashion objects, which I thought about conceptually from this perspective of presenting them on bodies or through the auxiliary structure of photography during a fashion show or on a mannequin. And now I'm invited or entering a space uh, which is largely a white cube, however much would change that and how to negotiate these two conflicts. And that was totally not resolved when I did that work. And uh, it's also, it was also curious for me to get this reception of the work. And then at that point I wasn't, I think it's fair to say that I was familiar with uh, more classical notions of philosophy as I learned or studied them in additional classes to my fashion education, but I was not attuned to a critical fine art discourse. So by which I mean like what artists discuss in terms of what school is dominant or what is being done in museums and galleries. I was just gonna say that I love the idea of uh, JTT being a white cube gallery in 2014, which was, it was really quite a small space. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, like maybe for you, it didn't feel that way because it was a very young gallery showing young artists. But I am aware that people who'd finished a finite degree while I finished a fashion degree do enter with a different discourse. That's not even a qualitative statement as in you need that to know, but it's very much as learning a new language. So what I would say now in 2020 is that I produced a critical work of fashion or of fashion art, if you were to use that word, um, but that in the way it looked and being presented in fine art had like posed curious problems to me. Like for example, the modernism of the forms, like the primary colors and the extreme reduction to basic um, stylistic elements all of which pleased certain people who would then like be invested in it. And I wouldn't even know what that meant because suddenly I was dealing with a finite discourse where arguably other things are pushing in. So that was, this is basically where we meet in this conundrum of understanding what I want to do and 
could have easily led to something else, you know, like abandoning the white cube immediately again and gravitating back to making garments and selling them or giving them away for free or what have you. Just to give our listeners a little bit of a background, JTT started in 2012 and we actually met in 2013. Were you conscious of what it was like to be bringing a practice that was developed in Europe to America? And so we met in 2013, your first solo show was 2014. So it was still really early on the development of JTT as well and what, mm. we, what we cared about. I think at the time, well, definitely not at my first show. I mean, this was pretty much like, in retrospect, if, if I had planned to do a show in New York City without, like if someone invited me to do a show now, let's say in a foreign place, this would catapult me in a much bigger dilemma than back then. I just pretty much took what I had and showed it. And I wasn't really aware of anything in particular, but as I stayed longer in New York and developed friendships, I did notice a big difference between pretty much everything from education to sociocultural backdrops, which first you think is not a big thing because it's pretty much the West, right? And we watch the same movies, which is, by the way, also not true. Like pop cultural references were totally lost on me. I remember dinners where I felt very unknowledgeable, not in it like, like I understood that, I couldn't have known these things, but but that was definitely something I understood. It's just not where I grew up in and I have to adapt, not in the sense of giving up where I come from, but in order to have certain conversations about humor or, uh, yeah, to relate. That's one thing. And the other thing is that, as I just mentioned, when I met you and when we started to work together and I started to actually have conversation with artists about art, that all happened in New York rather than happening in Vienna, where I was in art school and had certain conversations, but was still performing a fashion practice in a fashion course. Although it doesn't matter if I thought that I was doing art at the time, who knows what art is, but we all know that there's a language that is attached to our discourse, which means where where do we show that art and uh, to ignore that would be nonsensical. So I started doing that in New York rather than in Vienna. Learned there from all the incredibly, you know, uh, well-trained, and that sounds bad, but like people who are extremely well-read and and eager to learn, which this is how I perceived New Yorkers in the beginning. I mean, it's only later where you maybe grow more cynical and you go like, well, that's because they have to survive in capitalism. But first of all, it was just challenging and beautiful. And I learned there and then eventually returned to Vienna, not, not physically because I lived there, um, but then critically evaluating perhaps fine art in Vienna or in Austria or in Europe. I want to I want to move forward to 2018. One of my favorite pieces where you had a sh- you had a show at Smack as a part of the Ars Viva Prize, and mm-hmm. in that show you included a piece of documentation related to your parents' business. Would you be able to explain that document to our listeners? In effect, it's two works. Unlike what they look like, they are actually not ready-made. So what we see are two vintage um, pieces of paper. I mean, we, we can only tell that from the typography being, being somewhat dated. 
and uh, both of them have letterheads referring to a company with an address called Berla, which happens to be, and I disclosed this in the description and in the press text, used to be the company, or I should say factory, run by my family throughout three generations, the product, production site, a factory for plastic and metal goods, namely accessory and fashion jewelry. This sort of heritage or the, the relics, the, the few relics I have of that time, um, which is not like far back. I mean, until I was, I think, 15, this factory existed. It existed as a location that I went to after school to have lunch, to see my mom and to eventually rummage through the archive of and so grew up with. So this place of production from zero to product, which is, I think, interesting because that's rare now, except if you if your dad happens to be a carpenter and you really still grow up with a notion of making a thing from scratch. So so that definitely lingers in my memory and I chose to show these two pieces of paper because I found them and when I did I think in the in what my grandmother had left after the factory had long closed when I found them I was myself surprised about this even older story which I did not grow up with because I think those um, sheets which are in effect order sheets where you have lines in which you can write down the number of items and the item number of what you want to order. Um, and when I found it, I had never seen it. And it, it spoke of a time when I was not born of the same company existing. And things had changed. The address had changed. Mm. The telephone number that is listed on it has three digits, which is not in existence anymore. So in a way, it had a curious passing of time inscribed while still being a nostalgic or personal object to me. There's three components to that piece that I feel like comes up a lot in your work. There's a sort of poetics of daily banal life. There's this personal biographical story. And then there's also this unraveling of the systems that our world lives in. And that piece right. encapsulated all three of those aspects. I can see that right. now sort of looking back um, two years later, but at the time I remember just thinking in a much more simplistic way that that work was about distribution. And I think at that time that was how I was understanding your practice was the way that images are distributed throughout the world and internet, how clothing is distributed, how ideas are distributed and translated. So did you feel, did you think a lot about distribution at that time? With that show, I did in an almost formalist sense. I can't make this really, really short, but there was a, let's say, a, a sister exhibition to this one where I had shown a piece which was essentially composed of two football goals, iron football goals, shackled together. And the basic idea, aside from everything else that it can refer to and that I'm interested in, it was about frustration of potential or sort of like the destruction of a, an open field. So in a very basic sense, if you take a square, squared field and you put two goals um, with that very simple intervention, you both create a field for play, which is delineated, but you also create this potential for play, which is all the space in between. And then sort of 
shackling them together is this in a very formal basic sense compressing space or destroying the destroying of that potential and coming from that work which i for reasons specific to that work which was returned after being used in the exhibition space to function again as football goals coming from there preparing for the show in ghent i devised this much more let's say interior design piece or it's not an interior design piece but i devised a piece comprised of four sofas that are shaped like corners couldn't be more banal i mean those sofas exist and again i was interested in what it meant to place them far apart or close together eventually in this iteration of the work more commenting on the aesthetic of a delineation of space for those particular pieces I also feel there's like a sense of power play going on with it where you, and even if it's just in a um, teasing kind of way where you're sort of asserting yourself onto this space, however small or large it is. Do you ever, right. do you ever feel that way with those pieces? I, I think, I mean, I think that's really everything you do in a white space for me. I mean, not you, what I do is sort of, um, what's the best word? Like dominatrix, like, you're dominatrixing the space. <laughs> maybe it's like <laughs> grappling for agency to to use something that is less magnanimous, like you know, like trying to define yourself vis-a-vis the circumstances, be they invisible, institutional, hierarchical, or just very basically, this is a shit as space. How do I? come to terms with that or this is a weird country a strange city I know nothing etc so I think that's true for everything I do or where I start but thinking about distribution I that's I think why you're not wrong and why me thinking about those sheets delineating or like those sheets used for ordering goods in a factory that is now not in existence because its product was outdated um, an industry in Western Europe at a certain moment in the 2000s that is definitely about distribution. In, so like where can something be placed? How is it going to be received? Where does it need to go? And more metaphorically, I think that's what my making art is about for sure. Like what should be where? And this may be also an answer or part of an mm. answer to why people perceive my work and that's also true I mean I, I make it like that but why people would say oh I saw your last show there and there I didn't even recognize it as your work or like I think it was Olga who once said to me every time I see your work it's like completely different stuff and she, she said it without like a value judgment I, I couldn't <laughs> I can't tell if, if that's good or bad but I, I thought it was adequate because I don't think that a lot of things can go many places well, at I want, the same time without thinking about that shift of distribution. Of well, distribution. I think what's so interesting about the show in Bonn is that it's probably the first show that one could walk into and say, ah, this is an Anna Sophie Burger show. Yeah. But before we move well, into I don't that, know. Yeah, maybe. I think so. But before we move into that show, I wanted to talk about one last series that are all titled The Choicest Relic. And this is maybe an interesting counter to something like the 
what I call soccer goals, you call football goals, uh, and the couch pieces because they're very delicate. They're pieces of large pieces of white paper that have a, a coat that has been soaked in water thrown on top of the pieces of paper and then dried. And so what is left is a sort of a paper that has the remnants of this water drying and it's wrinkled in, in areas and crumpled in areas and flat in other areas. Can you tell us about the title of those pieces and why you titled them that? So this is actually a riddle. So the story is that I remember finding the title Choices Relic as a word. And this is why I think I remember, but memory is tricky. I remember having to Google choicest or choice as the adjectival use. So not choice as in the noun I choose, but choice as the best solution of a choice, right? The choice piece of meat. Remember Googling that after reading it, and this is another thing I remember, in a Beckett text. Uh, at the time I was reading quite a bit. I was also working previously on like at that time on the show that we did at JTT, a group show, which also had references to this text by Beckett called First Love. And I was absolutely sure that I took it from there. So the meaning to me was in a Beckettian sense, something akin to uh, one dead body of a long gone by civilization, humorously being placed over, like not ethical, but like, oh, is one bone I find from old Roman Empire better than another? And how would I justify that? So it's a little hard to understand, but it's, it's very, to me, it was very Beckett, very, very Beckett, like this relic. And how do you say one relic is better than another? Is it older? Is it nicer? Does it taste better? Um, and I really liked that. And I chose it as the title for this piece that you described. Beautiful. Uh, which is a, looks to me like a fossil or whatever. Beautiful. But it turns out, or I, mean, I don't know if it turns out, recently the piece was shown in a show that a collector here in Vienna organized. She owns the piece, or one of the series, and she had a writer write blurbs about the works. And this writer did not consult me. It's not her fault. I mean, she had all the info she needed. And she tied Choices Relic to Thoreau. And the Walden text, which I have read, and I was like, how dare she? Or why didn't she do her research? But sure enough, I typed it in, and it's a concept he very much, he explicitly uses that sentence, choicest relic, in that connection. And he uses it to describe language, as opposed to objects or the material world, as the best of relics. I could go on and on. but So that I also like, because in a way, it's a watermark of something that is gone. So it's basically nothing. It's paper, right? Like if we didn't know about the process, it really is water that has evaporated. And that is, of course, related to indexicality, like the trace that something leaves, which has once touched, which is interesting to pair with language. But so I don't know anymore. Today, I started to, to look through texts and to look through my notes and try to find that concrete link to the Beckett text, and I can't find it. I really don't think I was thinking of Thoreau at the moment, but it is, it's a riddle. I, like if you type it into Google, funny, Beckett you... and Choices Relic, <laughs> the only thing that pops up is Anna Sophie Berger. You know, it's so funny, Anna, when you, when you started this by saying that this was a riddle, I really thought that you were going to say it was like a riddle between you, the artist, and the viewer, but it's really just a riddle between you and yourself. <laughs> no, it's just... 
a very solipsistic. It's just me wandering by myself, which if I made a critical error or I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we'll be right back after this brief announcement. <laughs> Jamie and Juliana Villani's third solo show at the gallery opens on December 9th. If you are able to come join us and see it in person, we hope you do. All right, let's, so let's get into your, your show at Bonn. There's a, a really powerful installation that I feel like the show centers around, but I'm not sure if you feel like the show has a center. But this installation called Taking Stock, it's not the first piece you see. It's actually kind of a piece you get into once you've gone through two different installations. Mm-hmm. But I, I really would love to hear your description of that installation, which comprises of 32 objects, I believe. I think so, roughly. I actually don't know. Not a good stock taker. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which work predates which other work in the show. I also, ultimately, I never really, doesn't really influence my choices. It comes together like in circles. But this was definitely one that I started to think about early on in the process. I think the idea I had had for a while, I've also, it's not completely foreign to me to think about lists of words or lists of words in English as correspondences to my speaking German and having English as a second language. But also, the more I understand about my own practice, I would say it's based in language, which is an interesting pairing that maybe many sculptors deal with and others would totally refuse because they would say they deal with the object materially but I very often find myself noting down a sentence like choicest relic and then or thinking about the jester and having a language or symbolical understanding of that word and having no idea what the sculpture could be or whatever I mean could be a wall work and then only later I find a way to make a jester quote unquote so for for this piece though I wanted it to be very stupid or like almost dull, like creating a stupid system which I could fill up with sculptural investigations without falling prey to a taxonomical approach, which would be sort of like when the system is what we perceive first of the work. Like I would say taxonomical would be like to say here are 30 objects all used by women in Western Germany. And even if they would look heterogeneous to you, you would perceive the the structure as soon as you know it as the dominant, because you understand how they are aligned and how they relate to one another. And I wanted to do a similar thing. I wanted to create a structure, but then not to fulfill it. So how did I do that? I don't know if that fails, but I wanted it to be an assembly of, individually constructed sculptures that follow certain sculptural logic, as in one is, I don't know, a burned piece of wood, a chair, and one is a totally dented car door made from metal and lacquer. But I didn't want all of these means of productions to be similar. I didn't want to only have ready-mades. I didn't want to 
make them all from scratch as original sculptures. I wanted them to preserve a sort of complexity where you're not quite sure if it's found, if it's constructed, and then to kind of arrange them in ways that additionally complicate that relationship. So not, you know, like put each of them on a pedestal so that you can, again, taxonomically perceive it, but more like um, one of the pieces is a thread which is bound around the wood piece. So two pieces enter a relationship, even if it's a precarious relationship. So, so just to take a step back, can you explain the relationship between this work and language? I drew up a list of verbs or participle perfects, like burnt or burn, it doesn't really matter. And the only limit to that list was that the words should denote transformative or violent processes. So as to burn, to chop, to break, to mold, to wither, ultimately to change, to disappear, although change was not specific enough to yield any sculptural output. And then from that list, I researched and narrowed it down to words that would yield interesting sculptures which then were completely freely devised. I mean, maybe I would come up with the idea that wood would be nice to burn and would take a minute to define that it should be a rocking chair that my grandmother owned, which is in a way more violent than just putting a burned log of wood on the floor, which could have happened as well. I just wanted it to be in both parts, pathetic and mundane, I guess. So yeah, from there, I just started to set to work and had a year of time, which allowed for a lot of freedom to just go through life and find something, but also decide to make something as, for example, with the plaster cast of Benjamin's face, which is entirely an original sculpture, not at all a ready-made. And through the process, I started to think them installational, like lean the car door against the sofa place the basket next to the table but that is almost like then scenographic that that happened through the course of making the work so beside this installation is a video piece called duel which is also the name of the show i watched this video close to after you finished it and it was i loved it it was really powerful i remember video is about 50 minutes and it includes footage that you've taken with a camera of your life, a video camera, and and music sort of layered on in a way that feels to me a bit like you're using it almost like a soundtrack. I flow in and out of nostalgia for the footage that you recorded, and also some voiceovers that you give kind of telling stories or narratives of different moments in culture that are that kind of parallel or have a metaphorical relationship with the footage that we're looking at. So I watched this video for the first time right after you made it and I found it so powerful to hear your own voice in relationship to the materials or the imagery that you were working with partially because I just find you so eloquent in the way that you you tie language in with the imagery I watched it again in the middle of COVID and I just started crying watching this video because it was like suddenly there was this time warp and we were back in Fellini's and having drinks with all of, all of your friends. And I think it was a going away party. Was it your going away party after leaving New York? Your well, birthday. Your birthday party. Well, going away. No, no, it was going away. You're I think right. it was going away. Basically, that's already 2020. 
like yeah. January 2020. Because how long did you, you lived in New York for a period of time? How long was that? Well, on off, I mean, since I received the visa, six years, but like really stably, let's say it was maybe two years plus, like till the onset of COVID, we'd been there for two years. Yeah. And um, I- without having a home. Yeah, so watching that video, it was like I was remembering you being in New York and I was remembering or just seeing f- artists that are your friends like Marco Capelle and Lena Henke and um, your friend Teek. And it was another kind of interesting moment where I was realizing I was having a sentimental moment, but I was also having a sentimental moment about a really banal <laughs> sort of like life experience of just going to Fellini's and having drinks. And I felt looking at this video in the middle of COVID like I was seeing exactly all the things that you are interested in, which is the values of sort of everyday life. Looking on that video now, how do you feel like it relates to your larger practice? Um, it's still hard to talk about it. Not that I don't know what to say about it, but more like the technique of editing footage, of collecting footage, then rearranging it and devising a second layer, which is in this case, let's say we have, I have video footage and then I decide to add textual meaning recorded by myself, which is not related to the footage necessarily. So just give you an example. Like I, let's say I'd, I had footage of New York City that meant something to me, but really is just a street crossing on Essex Street and the Delancey. And then to add to this, in my recorded voice, a bit I had re- written about a Nestroy play, which is an Austrian playwright. Like this sort of process, which doesn't happen, or to me, I hadn't planned that. It's not like I'm a director who can sit down and say, I'm going to record New York City streets views and my friends to then layer it with text. So that whole process was wild. And throughout large parts of the time, I didn't know where I was going. I mean, you can't just make a movie about street scenes in New York and then put other people's music on top. I mean, you could, it's it's still going to have an impression. But so that whole process of coming to terms with what should be brought together and additionally enter the film was wild. And, and I didn't see the end of it until I really started. And that was great. And in this sense, it fulfills a role that my sculpture cannot fill. It fulfills a sort of it serves like as a as a repository for like the clusterfuck of everything I find interesting without having to justify why that has to be in a piece. You know, like going to a theater, thinking about Mozart and then filming the streetlights. And then it's a cross-pollination too. Like you find yourself recording sirens and red lights and then you start to think about red lights in the city. So that's also nice because it's almost investigative. Like you do it and then you can start to ask questions so that's great other things as the specific nostalgia and patheticness of certain scenes I had to not that I always loved them like the scene where I used that one or tricks point never track which I used because of the film good times by the Safdie brothers which is beautiful but it was pathetic has been used before by Arthur Jaffa but even definitely dominates the sentiments as you watch that scene of young people in a bar which has since closed for good with the red light illuminating their faces 
And I still don't know how, how that functions. I, and you can decode it. I wonder how it is for someone in Berlin coming to Bonn, thinking about that sort of nostalgia or what that moment means. And it has already aged in a sense because we're experiencing COVID. So these moments are now non-existent. And Lord knows when we'll all be together. But I don't know how. Yeah, these are things that I haven't yet completely figured out. Would I do that again or would I use different music? What was powerful about it was that when you're experiencing daily life, if you make art about daily life, the objects, their banality sort of sustains themselves. But when daily life changes so dramatically, looking back on something that was once banal becomes so incredibly powerful because it's a bit like... yeah looking into a self that you no longer are. And I guess that's kind of what nostalgia is. But yeah, I I had this moment where I realized I might never be drinking with Dina Iago and Forlini's ever again. (laughs) Something about that made me cry. Well, you will definitely not do it in Big Bar because Big Bar is gone. Yeah. But it's interesting because in a way, obviously, we didn't deal with the problematics of the world having changed while we were preparing a show too much because I brushed it aside and I think I'm glad I did. But of course, we had to ask the question, what's going to change? Like we were supposed to open in May. We couldn't open. We were opening after the summer, which is roughly half a year into a pandemic or more. And of course, I was thinking like, what will that do to the video, etc. But like two things I think are true for New York, especially and, and for the world. One is that COVID flushed out. Like, I I think I disagree with people who describe it as a condition that brings out new things about us or the world. I don't think so. I think it brings us in touch with very intimate fears, uh, most of all those of us who are most fragile. And it sort of exacerbates everything that's going wrong in societies. So that's like, crudely speaking, what I perceive So in a sense, what was already precarious or like critical in that video now is exacerbated to a dimension that it cannot even speak of. Like it can't even speak of all the people who are suffering, dying, losing their work, their job, their homes. But so this is one thing. And the other thing is New York, where I was just reading, I don't know if you ever had uh, Samuel Delaney's Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, where... He's doing such a great job not to fall into nostalgia while he talks about the changing structure of the sex cinemas of Times Square. And it is true that with New York, almost everything you record in time that is specific is almost immediately already gone in a weird sense. Like we don't know the same thing for Vienna. Vienna has this curious narcotic effect when people return they go like oh thank god it's still there (laughs) like nothing ever changes and maybe i'm jinxing it now but new york has this where you watch films that are five years old ten years old you add to it pre and post 9 11 and how people relate to this there's this very powerful dominance of change in time i think There's actually something else about that video in particular that I found very American, but I'm not sure if you agree with me on this, but in the beginning of the video, there is 30 or more examples of sirens going through the city. You have Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. police cars, uh, ambulances, 
fire trucks, but you don't only record right. the actual sirens, you record the way the light refracts against the walls, the right. buildings, and, and sometimes even the interiors of restaurants. It's, it's really beautiful. I'm actually going to play the voiceover of that portion of the video for our listeners. The semantics of emergency. The pious cross themselves to protect the victim and to cast off the evil eye of vicious fate, a symbol of organized religion's syncretization of the inchoate but true fears of the folklore. Sirens, they are called. Dangerous creatures, half bird, half woman, who lure nearby sailors with their enchanting music and singing voices to shipwreck on the rocky coast of their island. Refracting from walls, illuminating faces, the pervasiveness of law enforcement pierces through every fiber of civic life. Was there something about living in New York that made you feel more uh, aware of the presence of law enforcement than other cities you've lived in? Um, yeah, for, I mean, for sure. Although, to exaggerate my like I was definitely not well how to phrase this. It was I was definitely visually aware of this sort of what I call piercing through civic fiber. And I found that already living there almost perverse in its beauty, where I step out of the door and the whole straightness of the street, because it's a grid, right, is penetrated by a light on the other side or like two blocks away of ambulance car. I mean, it could be all three of them, which slightly changes the reading, right? Because one of them is sort of trying to save lives. Another one is arguably arresting and thereby maybe destroying a life, depending on how you, you want to view it. And that was de that's definitely a different thing as compared to Vienna. What I was grappling with or what I was trying to say is that it's not like I was in contact with law enforcement because I'm a white body living in Manhattan. And that's just also something to say. It's not like I felt pressured by law enforcement because I'm not, because that's the structure of this, of police presence in the areas that I walk in and my socioeconomic setting. So I couldn't claim that. Coming back to Vienna, And I wondered if that is because I'm more alerted to it or because I follow the discourse or I'm more critical or radicalized in my criticism. I do think since we've returned, we've noticed, and I mean, there's real numbers to back that up because we had a very conservative, we had a conservative and right-wing coalition government, which was only turned over a year ago, if I'm right? And that government really stocked up on police presence. And that has not changed, even though the city is technically run. Vienna is um, by a socialist mayor, a social democrat, not socialist. Police is everywhere. We don't hear of police brutality as in the US, that I think it's safe to say is very different. But I am very acutely aware of there being too much police, of it being pervasive, of me being on the street and within the course of 10 minutes seeing three cars pass that are there to signal the presence of the police. And that bothers me massively. So so there's, I think, 
It wouldn't be conducive to the conversation to say it is as in the US because it's not. But I feel very upset about it being so dominant here too. I'm going to switch gears slightly and ask you a very broad question. Do you identify as a structuralist? (laughs) Well, I'm going to draw up my notes. I mean, this is a very large question, depending on how how, uh, you want to start. I would say I am not, mostly because as an artist, I me personally, I don't think I, like, I don't work, I don't have a standing manifesto and I don't have specific rules for my points of interest. So to mirror a concept that derives from a specific science in the humanities, namely philosophy and then bordering on other, like system theory and otherwise, I wouldn't feel authentic about it and I wouldn't feel that that was adequate because the translation is always poor. So even if my whole subject matter was to make art about philosophy, I think it wouldn't, I couldn't make art that is about structuralist philosophy. But hey, that's, that's also my personal thing. The other thing is like to think about structuralism and like we were talking before, like to be concise about it, I also from time to time have to look up these things in order to not just reference empty shells. But there's aspects about structuralist thought that I agree with or that resonate with me. For example, just the very basic thing to postpone meaning in a single thing or fact, which is related to the fact that structuralism does not regard the single parts as important, but looks at the whole or the like, structure in every given situation. And that if we popularize this or like if we perceive this as something that has shaped the thought, obviously not just of philosophy, but of course shapes art theory, shapes culture, that is something of course agree with. I am not interested in a stable, essential, erratic object, which then you see and you are hit by that specialness and you immediately understand it and then you are activated and changed. No, I don't believe that just as much as I don't believe in that in society at large, I, I think, yes, we have certain objects in the world, certain thoughts in the world. We ourselves as subjects, we move in the world. And the way we are understood and the way how our actions are understood and the way our sentences are read are contingent on the systems that we are intertwined in. These could be basic systems of kinship, like you like me and I like you, you know me and I know you, or it could be systems of power, like I fear you and you fear me. So in that sense, yes, I like that and I can relate to that. With my own practice, if someone were to call it structuralist, just simply to describe that I make an object which has many meanings, which draws from many places and can be read in many ways, I would still then maybe say that's not all I care for because as I come from fashion and as I work myself around the theory of objects or the material theory of objects, I am also drawn to the, like, I mean, there's a very complicated word to describe something simple, which is called praxeology and basically describes the handling of objects. And this could happen non-semantic 
it's very hard to talk about it because the minute I describe to you that I handle a chair and I'm violent, we are already dealing with language. But there is, let's say, such a thing as a residue or something non-semantic that attaches to objects, which I'm drawn to. It's not an esoteric thing. It's just that I think it's more powerful than we know. And I think it also influences our relationship to objects more than we know. Maybe a good example of that is in taking stock where you have these objects, these 32 some objects, and each of them represent a word that, and that word is violence or destruction, but you don't make that list available to the people that are coming to see the show. And it's because you have a trust that there is an experience that the viewer is going to have with those objects, even if semantics plays in without semantics mediating the experience. Right. And the hope or the goal would be to create, well, to a certain degree, an openness like that allows for a reading that is both maybe brutal, but also creating new points of entry. Because we all know that, I mean, this is, again, thinking about what Delaney talks about when he talks about society and places where people can meet and how important it is in a city to have spaces that are permeated by delinquency or shadiness or perversity or desire or sex. There is no such thing as just wrong or right or broken or functional. At least I don't really believe in it. So I'm not proposing this is the start of a new world of broken objects, but I'm also very much trying to not propose this is the result of us being destructive and now that's sad and then I wage my moral finger and hope that we reconstruct. That would be a very conservative reading of that piece which I try, would have tried, I mean that would not be my reading of it or my attempt. When you enter the Bond show, the first piece that you see is a piece called Tower One and there is a second piece also called Tower Two in the second room. Would you mind describing those works for us? So Tower 1 and Tower 2, both constructed similarly or the same way from units of plywood boxes of various shapes covered prior to being assembled with various fabrics. And I've used that way of construction, of of building before and it dry like it's like it draws from do-it-yourself logic of city vendors, not as is stated in the freeze article, just from Asian vendors. And that I think was a critical mistake in that piece. Yes, when you walk in New York City and you walk by a flower shop, you can find those preliminary or like quickly put together structures that are used by vendors to permeate public space, to create a structure that is both cheap, serves as utility, and that is perhaps also not so pristine that people would steal it. And drawing from that, I I devised this idea of using with those cardboard cubes. And then I covered them with fabric. The fabric usually for me has specific sociological connotations, which I use in reference to which work I'm making. So while before I had used only polar fleece, which is a sort of a fabric which induces a feeling of childishness or naivete, it's kind of 
soft looking and hairy, slightly hairy. And in a way you could say it dumps the look of wood. If you have a wooden cube, the primary association is hardness. If you cover it with polar fleece, it looks more like a toy. It looks softer or it reminds you of a cat's scratching pole. And I had used that before. And for Bonn, I started to mix in with the polar fleece uh, tweed fabrics, which, again, in the most basic of chains of association, I would say is a fabric for suits. We could add maybe a suit for men, but it could be a suit for women. It is definitely uh, an area of a field of professional people who wear the fabric both because they can afford it, but also because they should afford it to signal a certain earnesty in their profession. Like, I don't know, a lawyer, an advocate, a doctor, perhaps, when not in the hospital. And... So these fabrics, you could say, are very different. One signals to the life of adults who earn money. One is maybe slightly infantilized. And I, when I say this to you, it is not because I have a clear ambition with what the outcome of that pairing should be. I think that's impossible and I'm not interested in it. I can't tell you if the tower should speak to us about the adults dominating the children or the children taking over the adults or, you know, like politics going down the drain or discursivity being lost. I don't know that, but I use them to create a sort of tension, pretty much. And then in the final object, which, as the name refers to, is a tower, and it's a pair of two towers who look colorful and strange, I wanted to have this sort of envisioned scene of maybe the duel, which gives line a title to the show, So one of the two towers is built exactly like a Tetris structure, like very even and very controlled, and it reaches almost five meters in height and looks like a huge step. You could walk on it and and end up on the tip. And the other one is more disorderly, or it's hard to say if it's like in the process of becoming as stable and as ordered as the other one, or if it's just refused to be as stable as the other one. So it's sort of semi-constructed and less upreaching than sort of wall or brick wall-like. And yeah, and both of them are on wheels, which alludes a little bit to this sort of, again, the idea of movement from A to B, but in this case, maybe also the movement to reach each other or to reach to the wall of that very big and very tall exhibition space. And that's it, essentially. They differ in the way they are assembled. The basic units are the same. And just the last thing I wanted you to talk about, which is the cutout piece, which is a diamond-shaped hole in the wall that Mm -hmm. points a lot to kind of the same shape and size of the diamond cuts put into borders around construction sites, especially in New York. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. inside are two red light bulbs titled Him, parentheses, Brain. Can you talk a little bit about those works? Well, the construction side diamonds I've been obsessed with for a long time, but with a lot of these sort of, with works around phenomena of the real world that are also neutral, but that are not neutral, but 
let's say we view them critically, especially we view building in the city in New York critically because we usually have reason to distrust it serving the city. Of course, they have a specific meaning and I was unsure for quite a while of how I would want to use them or if I would want to use them at all for risk of making a facile statement about real estate or making a pretty work about something that is not pretty. And ultimately for Bonn, I solved it by deciding that I was not going to replicate it entirely because the, con the diamonds at the construction sites are usually closed off by additional plexiglass in the same shape. I did not do that for the show in Bonn because I thought it's less valuable to me that it be exactly the same as in New York City. And I was rather interested in the idea of what it stands for, like the idea of penetration, transparency, opening something up. I mean, visually, it's very, very beautiful, like any structure that is imposed and then performed many, many times. Like if I were to tell you, draw a diamond on each wall in New York City, that would yield the most beautiful formal result. But really, um, it's interesting because for practical labor code and construction code reading, it has to be done. And it's used or not used, I don't know how often it's used in effect, to to allow transparency at the workplace, which is such a funny thing because the minute the building ends or the building process is done, that transparency ceases. And I, I mean, that logically, that makes a whole lot of sense because the labor then is done. But this is the moment, right, where usually the building goes up, which many have spoken about much more eloquently and criticized um, what that means for a city in a city where public space is scarce, in a city where cheap housing is scarce, etc. So I was just interested in that sort of penetration or this performed transparency, which then afterwards ends and brought it into the exhibition space. In the end, for the piece, it's it's not so much to speak solely about New York City's construction code, but also just performing or re-performing the effect of spatial penetration with a hole. And in the case of the show, we have one hole that pierces or cuts through the outer wall of the cube, which is permanently in, like it's it's built in the exhibition hall. And the other one is inside. And this is a little harder to know when you can't visit the show. So what I did is I built an additional drywall to make the inner cubed gallery space smaller, which is sounds like a like a trick or why is that important but it sort of it it means that there's a frustrated non a space now that is not in use which people who are familiar with the exhibition space there know so they are they are basically missing half of the inner exhibition space and they are perhaps looking for it or can't find it and in that wall which separates the inner space there is another cutout which enables you to really look inside into that dead space and see behind the drywall. So we have these two cutouts that serve a slightly different or allow a slightly different perspective into the exhibition architecture. And that architecture. ties a lot in a way back into the soccer goal works or the couch pieces where you are right. cutting off space and 
allowing people to peer into essentially a, a head-sized peephole right. into another room. And just to clarify, because earlier you were saying how beautiful it would be to draw diamonds on all the walls in New York. And so in a way you're talking about cut what it would be like to cut actual holes into all the walls in New York to divide up public and personal space, which is something that you talk a lot right. about in your larger practice, this idea of public space, who is the public and what is private space right. and who is that shared yeah. with. That now smaller exhibition space, I installed two red light bulbs, each of them being a work in and of itself. It's called, the German title means brain, hirn. It's as much, again, a poetic understanding of the idea of red light as it is a sociological understanding of the idea of red light. So I titled it Brain because it sort of signals towards the informational center of the body, which we all don't really, we're not sure what's really going on there, but we know it's sort of like where everything is guided from or decided from. So you could arguably say that red room is the control center of spatially of the rest of the show. But you could also read that red light again with a lens as towards society, red light district spaces where red light is used. I mean, from the photographic developing room to spaces in clubs. In Vienna, we often have red light outside of brothels, which are not criminalized here. Prostitution is legal. And again, leading full circle to the video where red light signals towards um, law enforcement, but also emergency vehicles. So Anna, where do you see your practice going from here? And what are some things you're thinking about? Steady further. Yeah, I, I don't really new steps prior to making them, I don't think. I'm looking a lot at objects I've collected that are printed, like tissues and business cards. Thinking about doing a show just about that. Commercial printing? Yeah, just like all found objects, but the opposite of the Bond show, because none of them are sculptural. All of them are flat and on paper or cardboard. Um, Thinking about our show, which I have no solution for, really, because it's such a complicated moment in the U.S. Yeah, trying to find ways to not do the same thing over. Oh, that's not true, actually. I'm writing, I'm trying to write two texts. I have been violently procrastinating them. One is about defining more clearly and more structuredly why I'm upset about certain artworks or shows. The idea why I was doing that was just because I found myself ranting about certain things and then I wanted to know, can I put this in words that are theoretically salient? Like, not that I want to have objective truth, but like, you know, sometimes you go like, oh, this is so fucked up that he makes these works. And then you go like, well, am I being moralist or is it ugly or is he an asshole? You know, and so I'm right. I'm trying to write that text, and I'm right. trying to write a catalog essay for the Swiss Institute show from last year. That sounds like a good practice to try and articulate the things that frustrate you. I have long wanted to write into words all the small ways in which I get frustrated as a dealer. It would just it would just result in a, a book of power plays. <laughs> right. <laughs> a bestseller. <laughs> Jasmine. 
I bet you went off. (laughs) (laughs) And on. (laughs) Well, Anna, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me.